The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. As Jimmy said, my name is Peter, and um, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to share. And um, yeah, you know, I would say for, for the last year, my wife and I have really appreciated the chance to get to know many of you and become a part of this church family. And we certainly look forward to, to getting to know more of you and at a deeper level. I think that's really important for us. Um, I'm part of Jimmy's discipleship group, as he said. And so, uh, you know, uh, I appreciated him deciding to give me the opportunity. And so, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to hear what I have to say. So, uh, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started here. Dear God, this is your time. Father, we're here because we seek to know you more, grow closer to you, love you better. And I pray that you just, I pray that you settle our hearts, settle my heart, and I pray that uh, this next next few minutes will be really about you, not about me, not about anyone here. Uh, I pray that you speak through me and, and open my heart and everyone's heart here. Father, we're, our country is going through a difficult time in, in multiple ways, and I, I, think that it, I think that it's challenging for many of us. I think there's, 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 I think anxieties are at a high level, and I pray, Father, for our country I pray that you lead our church and our country in revival and repentance, and I, I just pray that your hand really be on what's going on in our country right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we've been going through this, this sermon series, The Lion, or Running with the Lion, and the main theme of the sermon series is this, that the prophet Hosea has been calling the nation of Israel to repentance, and then we have also been called to repentance. And the, the word repentance has the idea in it of someone's going in the wrong way, they're going down the wrong path, and they're being called to turn and go back, come back to Christ, leave their sins, leave their way of doing things, and come back to the way God wants us to do things. And I think that one thing we have to realize is that the idea of repentance is not, a, is not a one-time thing. This is not something we do when we become a Christian and then we, we move on from that. Repentance really needs to be a lifestyle, the lifestyle that we live. And we need to live a lifestyle of constantly looking at where God is, looking at where we are, and turning and coming back to Him. And if you're like me, there's ways in your, your life where you've probably seen tremendous progress and, and, and you've conquered, in, in a sense, you've conquered certain sins. I can think of earlier in my life, one, one issue that I had, and of course, I didn't even know it was an issue at the time, but I had this tremendous need to win arguments, and it was tied in, I think, to, to pride, and probably I had some identity, I had some, some of my identity was wrapped up in being the person who knew a lot of stuff or the person who was smart. So whenever I had an argument, whether it was about politics or theology or just about anything, really, really important for me to win. And I prioritized being right over being kind. Uh-huh. And I won a lot of arguments. Didn't necessarily win a lot of friends that way. And I'm blessed to say that's, that's one area where God, God has really humbled me, and I've seen tremendous progress in my life. That is just less of an issue. Not to say that it's not an issue at all, but it's less of an issue than it was before. But if you're like me, there's probably areas of your life where you're probably a little disappointed 
at the lack of progress that you have and you see recurring sins or patterns of sin in your life and it doesn't feel like you're making the kind of progress that you want to. And frankly, I see this in myself, I hear it from friends, this is borne out in church surveys nationally. Many Christians are disappointed that the walk with Christ and the life with Christ that they expect doesn't actually match up to their real experience. And there's verses in the Bible like John 10, 10, where it says, you shall have life and life to the full. And Paul says that we are supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we hear these things about abundance and joy and freedom and progress. And we look at our own lives, and sometimes I think we begin to despair a little bit. There's just there's, there's patterns that we seem to have difficulty escaping. And so I want to talk about that. And so this talk, I hope, I hope this is both a challenge, because we've got some room to grow, and also an encouragement, because real progress is possible, and Christ will walk through us. If we want to run with the lion, we've got to make progress in these things. So that's my goal for this talk. We're going to, um, we're going to look at an interesting passage as we do this, we're going to look at, at, at a passage which you're probably familiar with, but it's frankly one of the stranger passages in the New Testament. Uh, it's the story about the Gerizene demoniac, or the, the, the demon-possessed man. And this, this story appears in three different Gospels. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, the version there. So go ahead and turn, if you have your Bible, turn with, um, with me to Luke 8. And before I read it, I should set the stage. So at this point, as Luke is writing, Jesus has passed his peak of popularity. Okay, so there was a period in Jesus' ministry where he was kind of increasing in popularity and the crowds were getting bigger. We're actually past that point. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, have deemed him not to be the Messiah. They say that any power he has is actually from the devil. And so Jesus is more and more withdrawing from the larger crowds, and he's more and more ministering just to the disciples. And in the verses just preceding the ones I'm going to read, Jesus and the disciples have set sea across the Sea of Galilee. And it's the, it was the passage where Jesus calms the storm. All right? So we're picking up just after that. And let me read, starting at verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across the lake from Galilee. And I should say, that's, this is the Gentile side of the Lake of Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirits to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, 
they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man with whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had been told, and those who had seen it, told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man, man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now you're all thinking to yourself, why did he choose that passage? So let's consider this scene. Jesus and the disciples land on the, sh on the, on the eastern bank of the Sea of Galilee. They're confronted by this demon-possessed man. And what we know about him is he has been, he's been living for some period of time possessed by demons. He's, he's naked. You can just imagine living out in the tombs, what the elements have done to him. He's, he's almost certainly bruised and cut and dirty and smelly. It's a pretty ugly picture. And if you were part of that town, having this guy around, probably the moms weren't too excited about letting their kids go out to play. You know, this, is, this kind of situation is not good for real estate values, having this guy in your neighborhood, right? Um, this is a weird deal. It's dangerous. And so that's part of the picture. Now, the second part is Jesus has this interaction with the demons. And this is very interesting. So, first of all, the demons seem to know who Jesus is. They know that he has more power than them. They know that he can, can order them, he can, uh, he can condemn them. And then you have this strange thing where they beg him not to, to send them into the abyss, but to send them into this herd of pigs. Now, this word abyss is interesting. In, it's, it's only found in the, New, in the Old Testament, this word has the idea of it's the place of the dead or it's the depths of the sea, okay? In the New Testament, this word is only found in this spot in Luke and then several times in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it, particularly in Revelation 20, it has the, it's the place where Satan is condemned for a period of a thousand years, okay? So what's interesting about this is the demons seem to have some idea that their future fate is to go into the abyss. They, they ask Jesus, don't send us into the abyss now. And they're, essentially, they're, they're asking for a stay of execution. And Jesus grants them this. And you have this strange part of the story where, for some reason, the, pig, the demons want to go into these pigs, and the pigs run down this hill. And it's sort of comical in a way. And in, in an ironic sense, the pigs run into the Sea of Galilee, and so they do actually wind up in, in an abyss of sorts, right? Because the abyss is the depths of the sea. But the most important part of the story is that Jesus came across this poor, terribly afflicted man, and Jesus sets him free. And, it's, and you see the man's response, and it's absolutely beautiful. The man, he understands what's happened. He understands what something beautiful has happened. When the townspeople get there, they see this man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed in his right mind, 
the man, and then the man wants to follow Jesus. He, he knows something good has happened to him, and he wants more of it. And Jesus actually says at this point, Jesus says, you know what, the people here know who you are. They know what you've been through. I want you to stay here and tell them what God has done for you. And so that's what happens. And uh, so the man does not follow Jesus, but Jesus kind of sets him up with a ministry of his own. That response makes a lot of sense and is beautiful. But the, other, the response of the other people is the one that I'm really captivated by and I want us to camp out on. And that is, these townspeople who have lived with this demon-possessed man and they've put up with him for we don't know how long, all of a sudden this man is set free and all of a sudden he's sort of normalized and cleaned up. And what does the Bible say their response is? They're afraid. And then their next response is they want Jesus to leave. And when I first read that, that seems almost inexplicable to me. And pretty sad, frankly. You know, one of the things that I have thought about many times in my Christian life, and I'm guessing many of you have too, is do you ever get the thought that if I could have been there at the time of Jesus, if I could have walked with him, if I could have seen some miracles, wouldn't that have made my faith, wouldn't that make faith a lot easier? And in this story and in some others in the Bible, we get the sense that there were people that they saw what Jesus did, they saw the beauty of it, and that was, the response was not to want to follow him. And so these people ask Jesus to leave, and he does. Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples, and they sail back across the Sea of Galilee. You know, there's a verse in James that says, draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. And unfortunately, I think the, the converse of that, of that verse is also true, and that means if we don't draw close to God, frequently he will let us, he will let us keep a distance from him. And that's essentially what the, what the people of, what, that's exactly what the Gerizines have done in this situation. And unfortunately, I think that, I think we have to question, you know, why would they do that? Why would they seemingly choose, uh, they've got the opportunity to have Jesus with them and perform miracles and heal them and teach them, and they send him away. Why would they do that? And I think the reason is because there was a certain order to their lives. There was a spiritual order. They, 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 they lived with this demon-possessed man, and even though it was uncomfortable and dangerous, it was also familiar. It was what they were used to. They had learned how to live with that. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus upsets the apple cart. Jesus comes along, and he is a higher order of spiritual being. And even though he is, even though he sets this man free, he's, he brings, he, he, it looks like he's bringing freedom, but he's also bringing great uncertainty. And they don't know what, it, what to do with it. And unfortunately, I think frequently when, when, when offered the question, do we want the the slavery that we know or the freedom that we don't know or that, with, that comes with uncertainty, 
we, like the Gerizines, tend to choose slavery. You know, the, um, it's really important. This man was, because was, I think, like I said earlier, frequently we fall back when we're not making the progress that we want to in the Christian life. We fall back on this idea, well, someday I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm just going to slog through until then. And the fact is, that is not all that God has for us. God does not just want us to go to heaven. God wants us to have victory now in this life. He does want us to live lives of freedom and joy and abundance and growth. That is what will draw people to Christ, to see, to see Christians' lives truly transformed. And he does not just want to save us from he does not, not just want us to go to heaven. He wants, us to, he wants to save us from the penalty of sins in our lives here and now. So I think for many of us, and for myself and for many of us, what separates us from, from the abundant life and the life we actually live is this, are, the, are the patterns of sin that we're stuck in. God wants us to have freedom. Um, but, and, and we have to ask ourselves, I think, this is a serious, this is a serious question. How is, our, how is our abundance? How is our joy? Do we feel free? Are we growing? When we read passages like Galatians 5.23 and we read the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we read those passages, does, do those words really characterize our lives? Are we really growing in those ways? And unfortunately, I think a lot of us settle for a brand of Christianity, a version of Christianity that is far less than what Jesus actually intended for us. And, um, and that's why, frankly, discipleship and spiritual formation is so important. One of the things that I love about the emphasis in this church on discipleship, and I like the term spiritual formation because everybody, everybody, whether you're in church or not, everybody's spirit is being formed in one sense or another. It's just a question of how it's being formed and who you're following to have it be formed. And I'd suggest to you, if you're not choosing to have your, if you're not choosing to follow Jesus, you're following somebody else, okay? And it's a worse choice. <laughs> so, I love the fact that this church emphasizes discipleship, and it's it's the it's a it's a process that that is not always immediate. Sometimes Jesus sets us free from our sin in right away, but more frequently, there's a process to it. And as I said, we oftentimes choose a version of Christianity that is that is much less than what God intends. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he writes, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So, why do we sometimes choose to live in slavery? And um, the reason is because sin patterns are, are, are become deeply ingrained in us. They become deeply ingrained from our families of origin. They become deeply ingrained from 
uh, just decisions that we've made over and over in our lives, and it's difficult to get rid of them. Just praying once about them usually doesn't solve the problem. <clears throat> so another example that I wanted to share from my own life is that I was, I grew up and I became pretty legalistic. I knew a lot about the Bible. I, I sort of had this checklist of, these were sort of the big sins that you, if you're a Christian, you didn't really want to commit those. And so lying was a sin. And I don't think growing up that I told too many overt, out-and-out lies, because that was on my checklist, not to do. But I'll tell you one thing. Did I, did I manipulate the truth? Did I manipulate other people by emphasizing certain parts of stories or not telling certain parts of stories? Absolutely. And, I, and actually, because I was a legalist, I became really good at it, right? And then I'm confronted with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what that really is about, that is about leaving verbal manipulation behind. It's moving on from just not lying to, hey, there's a lot more to it than this. This is a heart-level issue. Are you going to deal with the heart-level issue? And so that's, that was one that a few years ago I was confronted by the, with the fact that I, I did that a lot. And... <clears throat> I'm pleased to say, because of some, some work in the spiritual disciplines and, and stuff, I think I'm making some progress in that. I think I am less verbally manipulative than I used to be. There's still room to grow. But I think for most of us, if we're honest, there's, there's patterns like this in our lives, and we need, to, we need to face them. And the problem is, these things have become so ingrained in us that it, it's, it's a process, and it's scary and difficult. Frankly, a lot of these things have become part of who we are, and to give them up is scary and difficult, and it's uncharted territory. And like the Gerizines, we figured out how to live. We've had we've figured out how to live in our relationships this way, and to and to change and do it a different way is not easy. Uh, it's not easy to admit this weakness, and 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 it's not easy to trust God with these parts of our lives. So. <clears throat> I want to get real specific here about some of these patterns of sin that I've seen in my own life and in the lives of, I think they afflict many Christians and, and non-Christians as well. But I want to walk through some of these, and I want to challenge you, kind of think about what are some of these that, that may be ingrained in your life and where you need to, where we all need to uh, do some work. <clears throat> One of the most obvious ones is, is in the area of addictions. And frequently, people get into addictions because they, they're coping with some problem. The addiction is actually a means of dealing with a problem, and then it becomes a problem itself. But things like, uh, you know, ad addictions to drug or alcohol, substance abuse, sex addiction, lust and pornography, um, gambling addiction, those are some of the most obvious ones. But how about some of these? How about overeating, or workaholism, or busyness, shopping, watching television, video games. Most of those are not sins in and of themselves, but do, do we use them, do we use them to separate ourselves from reality and separate ourselves from God? Too frequently I have. One of the things that I've learned from, from fasting is when I fast, 
I'm, I realize how frequently during the day, I, when I'm uncomfortable in a situation, how frequently I will run to grabbing something to eat. And I'm just, when I fast, and that's one of the spiritual disciplines that we talk about, when I fast, I'm confronted by the fact that, hmm, I use that, it's a small thing, but I use that to cope with problems. And in my own work with spiritual disciplines, I'm, just, I'm confronted by so many things like this that I do. How about impatience? You know, when I got married, I thought I was a pretty patient person. <laughs> and then when I had, and then when I had, then I had kids, and then it got really bad. Um, but one of the things I discovered about myself was that I had learned pretty well to appear to be patient while stuffing the emotions <laughs> inside of me, and particularly with kids. And there is nothing that I have had to discuss and repent of with my kids more than my impatience and the anger that comes along with it. How about, I'm going to put several of these together, but how about anger and resentment and contempt and hatred? You know, there are some families that I have come across that if they didn't have, if they didn't have anger and hatred as part of the relational dynamic, there wouldn't be a whole lot left to be honest. And changing those dynamics is really difficult. I want to tell a story about resentment, which I think fits into the same category. So when my, first, my wife and I were first married, we got into a venture with another couple. And I don't want to get into the details of that, but basically we were partnered with another couple. We were doing this thing together. And it went very poorly. It was extremely disappointing. We frankly lost a lot of money in, in, in Eventually, we left, and it was, frankly, one of the most depressing and, and sad moments of my life. We felt very betrayed by this other couple, and we ended up moving away. But what we found was, even a couple years after we had moved away, we just we found ourselves talking about and thinking about that experience and that other couple far too often. It came up, and we were still just kind of, it was a focus of our lives that it didn't need to be. And finally, thankfully, Joanne suggested, you know what, we need, to, we need to write a letter to them and apologize for our part of it. And I didn't want to do that at first, but I did realize, hey, that's, a, that's a, probably a good idea. And so we, we, uh, Joanne wrote a letter to the woman, I wrote a letter to the man, and then we, we actually had to go to the step of, we had to read each other's letters just to actually see, are we actually doing this right? And in both cases, there were some, there were some things that we'd kind of stuck in there which weren't apologies. And so we had to go back, we had to redo the letters and make them genuine apologies for our part of the problem, not worrying about their part of the problem. And we, wrote, we sent those letters off, and it was, it was an amazing moment of freedom for us. We sent those letters off, and... It was like a burden had been lifted from us. We don't know what happened to those letters. We don't know how they responded to. It, it doesn't matter. We did our part in that. How about, how about worry and anxiety? In our discipleship group a while back, Jimmy asked us to really give some thought and pray about an area of our life that we needed work in the here and now. And the one that I felt like God put on my heart was the anxiety that I carry when it relates to, to just the work, my work life, and 
so much of the time during the workday, I just, I feel anxious and burdened. And I think it's because my identity is wrapped up too much in my work. And uh, it's, at some level, it's just a lack of trust in God. And so that's one of the areas that I am praying about now. But it's, it might, it's a big deal. Like, it saps the joy from my workday. And so that's one of the things that I am praying about on a daily basis now. I'm going to go through some of these others fairly quickly, but I really challenge you, just give some thought to whether some of these apply to you. How about self-pity or victimhood? How about, how about envy? I think, I think envy is just a tremendous problem in our society. We focus so much on not what God has blessed us with, but what other people have that we don't. How about, how about pride? C.S. Lewis would say that pride is the greatest sin of all because it's putting ourselves, it's making ourselves number one instead of God. How about, how about judgmentalism? And how about, how about just the urge to compare ourselves to others and sort of, and I think this happens a lot in church context, how about the urge to size each other up and see how we, how do we measure up against the other person? I have I've been told by pastors that in going to pastor's conference, one of the questions that will come up in discussions far too frequently is they will, the, the, the pastor, somebody will ask, how big is your church? What's the point of that question? It's sizing, si- sizing the other person up. In my own industry, I'm in the in- investment business, and so there's a, there's a measure of how much money are you managing, which that's going to that's gonna point to well, how much money are you making? And frequently when I go to a lunch, somebody will ask, what are, what's your assets at? Where, where's that at? And I have had to consciously make a decision. Not only am I not going to ask that question, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to do my best to step out of that whole arrangement because it's not, it's, not it's not what we're supposed to be focused on. So... Those are some. There's, there's many others, and I leave you to think about, about some of these sin patterns that tend to trap us and steal the freedom that God wants us to have. But the solution is, if we want to run with the lion, if we're, if we're carrying these sin patterns with us, it's like trying to run with the lion while carrying a 50-pound weight around our waist. We're going to be able to do some of it, but it's going to weigh us down. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that there's a problem. We, and, and, and that means we need, to be, we need to read the Bible, we need to get the truth from the Bible. We also, we also need to hear truth from other people. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, we need to have people around us that can speak truth to us. We certainly need to be in prayer with God about it. We need to be willing to get humble and acknowledge our needs here. Our, our, so I think one of the biggest problems in the American church, I'm not saying this church in particular at all, actually, but in the American church is we have a tendency to, we, we lack vulnerability. And we, we frequently, we wear a mask. People wear masks when they come to church. And they actually, rather than, rather than getting healed and, and acknowledging sinfulness, we kind of act like we've got it all together. There's a great quote from a Christian writer named Brennan Manning who said, the church should be a hospital for saints. I just messed it up. 
The church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So we need to, we need to have people in our lives that can speak truth to us. And I would submit, if, if you, as I went through that, the, that list of sins and, and others in the Bible, and if you kind of listen to that list and kind of think, you know, I think I'm good. Um, I would suggest that you may need to get somebody in your life who can speak, speak some truth to you. Maybe it's your wife or, or spouse, maybe somebody else. Joanne can attest that I've made some progress, but I've got a long way to go. And we'll, we'll, we'll leave her talk for another time on that subject. But one of the most, one of the verses that speaks to this issue of self-deception is First um, John one, First uh, John one eight and nine. And actually, I think Mike last week used the second of those verses. But my mom had me memorize some verses when I was very young, and this was one of them. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why she thought this was so important for me to memorize when I was like eight or nine years old. But um, the verse is, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But the first part of that is crucial. We have to, we have to, identi- we have to identify these, these sin patterns and then actually say, I want to make some progress. And the beauty of it is, the beauty of our relationship with God is, God already knows these things. God already knows, knows more about these things than we do. And he wants to walk through these with us, and he, he wants to forgive us and set us free, but he also wants us to acknowledge it, and he wants us to draw close to him, and if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to run with him the way that he wants us to. So today, tonight, I want to leave you not with the big idea, but I want to leave you with the big question, and the big question is, are we, are we going to run with the lion, or are we like the Gerizines? Are we going to choose the slavery that we know and that is familiar over the freedom that Christ offers us? So, appreciate the chance to share today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.